So we've been talking about the principle of all humans being created with value, dignity, and worth in the image of God. And we've been talking about many different cultural applications of this principle. And we're talking more broadly about some of the distinctive features of Christian culture and how sometimes that overlaps with us being as Americans and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's just what it means to be distinctly Christian. And so we've been exploring a lot of these questions this fall. Last week, we started the question, are women as valuable as men? And so we've been going over this paradigm of scripture, of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. And I think that this is really the big picture way of understanding scripture as a whole. And we live in a time frame of the fall right now. And if we're a believer, we also simultaneously are living in redemption. And we look forward to glorification someday. But we are living kind of in two realities of living in a fallen world and that is under the curse, but living as redeemed people as the church and trying to grapple with how does that work itself out as you're living among other people who are living in the fall and are not redeemed? What does that begin to look like? And how do we act as transformational agents within our culture? Now, a couple of scriptures that we did not get to last week, I just wanted to highlight really quick. Um, When we think about our redeemed state, in particular, Colossians 3 is another great scripture to consider because we said that our goal, one of our goals in redemption is to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That we have been created in the image of God, but then there was the fall, there was the curse. And that part of our task as Christians is as we grow in faith, as a redeemed people, uh, we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Colossians 3 says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator. And so part of living as the redeemed people is, as we talked about last week, having the Holy Spirit who lives in us and walking in our spiritual gifts, walking in the fruit of the Spirit and becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And part of that, I think, harkens us back to our created state before the fall, that there is an echo of going back to the garden. As we are more and more renewed in the image of Christ, we ought to not perfectly, but we should approximately or approach the renewal that would go in our sanctification as the Holy Spirit is working with us. The more and more the curse should be gone from us over time. You can look back in your Christian life. You're not as the same as you were when you became saved, right? As the Holy Spirit has worked in you, you have become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, right? And Jesus didn't just die to forgive us of our sins, Romans 6 to 8. He died to set us free from our sins. And we still are in that struggle until the day that we die. But if we're making no progress in the Christian life, if sin has equal hold today as it did when I came to Christ, 
there starts to be a question of how much am I submitting my life to the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so this is the great tension that we're in. We're, we're products of the fall, but we're living in the redeemed state. We already have the Holy Spirit, and we're trying to submit to his power and authority in our lives and looking forward to the glorified state. Galatians 3 is another great passage explaining our redemption. As many of you know, as, we're, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is our core identity as Christians. So we are heirs. And when we are heirs, when we are Abraham's children, God doesn't care what race you are. He doesn't care what your sex is. He doesn't care about um, what country you're from. He says that all are one in his son. And this is what makes Christianity truly a unique and global religion, is that God is not a respecter of persons when he is building his people. And so these are just two more passages that we didn't get to go over last week that kind of relate to this larger conversation um, about men and women. And so last week we began to look at Acts chapter 19. This is the one thing that I will briefly review. We looked at this uh, excerpt from Acts 19 about a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith. He basically was helping to build uh, little miniature idols of Artemis that you could put in your house to help facilitate your contemplation of Artemis uh, as your is an act of worship. But he, this is how he and his fellow silversmiths would make a living. Well, along comes Paul and his friends, and people start believing in Jesus and throwing away their idols and burning their books on witchcraft and. And Demetrius is getting a little concerned that his livelihood might be going away. And so a riot ensues, and um, he's, he's very upset and wants the government to take action against the Christians, right? And so the po- one of the points I was making with this passage is that Christianity is inherently culturally disruptive, or at least it ought to be. If it's not being culturally disruptive, then we have to kind of ask what's happening, what's going on. And, but we have to be very careful about how we're being culturally disruptive. And so these are some of the questions that I'm trying to probe, but what, I'm, what I see in Acts 19 is a great example is as the gospel goes out, no culture is going to stay the same. No culture is going to be untouched because religions, Christianity makes very bold claims to be the truth when it comes to religion. And so that's going to have a a transformational effect on people's lives. When the gospel goes to, to new cultures, then they have to, missionaries often have to grapple with very difficult questions such as, well, what do I do in a, in a culture where the, the gospel comes and, and everyone in the culture is practicing polygamy? That's going to be a cultural disruption right? What do I do when, when the uh, local town witch doctor gets angry at the missionaries for preaching the gospel because he's saying, don't go to the witch doctor. You know, let me come pray for you in the name of Jesus. That's going to be culturally disruptive. 
It's not possible for the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to go out into some place and not be disruptive. It's going to do something to change that culture. Now, we haven't always done a terrific job of discerning our own culture, which will be a conversation we're going to have in the future. Because sometimes we have this tendency to think that our own culture is the right one. This is our way of doing it. This is the right way, right? And it's good every once in a while to step back and kind of take off your glasses and examine them and look at them and see, oh, this, these are my cultural values and what does this begin to look like, okay? So today we're going to be talking about uh, some cultural issues and examples where cultures are being disrupted and transformed by the image of God concept. Because I want you to see that in some places in the world, this idea that we, we kind of take for granted is a deeply disruptive concept to certain cultures. And that it has a profound impact, I think, even on our own culture. So a couple of weeks ago, it was the, uh, October 11th was the International Day of the Girl Child. I think sort of an awkward title. It was a lot on social media, and it was really highlighting... A, a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about today. And if you would like to read a Christian perspective on many of these questions, I highly recommend Carolyn Custis James's book, Half the Church. She's a female theologian. Uh, she's an evangelical. And many of the themes that I'm going to talk about today and that I talked about last week are nicely summarized in her book, Half the Church. So if this is a topic that intrigues you and you want to go deeper, that would be a good uh, place to do that. And what I like about Miss James is that she has a very global perspective on Christianity. She's not, she really tries to get us out of our Americanized versions of Christianity. And um, I really appreciate that. So we're going to start by talking about the issue of gender side. Now, gender side is a very unfortunate practice in some parts of the world where girls are killed simply because they are girls. And this is a real thing, and it is a very sad thing. I thought this was a great little graphic. It says, gendercide results in a world with millions of fewer girls. This is interconnected with some other related issues of sex trafficking, child brides, and domestic violence. All of these issues are... are Issues that are kind of intertwined, and we're going to talk about some of that today. And it's not to say that these things only affect girls. But gender side is something specifically that affects girls. Ge sex trafficking is something that affects both boys and girls, um, but, but mostly girls. And these are, these are very tough issues for us because we feel like they're sort of disconnected. It's something that somebody else has to deal with. But this is a wonderful opportunity for us as Christians to, to reflect about the transformational nature of our worldview. So we're going to watch right now a short clip from a documentary called It's a Girl. It's just a short trailer for the documentary. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, this is a tough topic. And my husband kind of was not all in favor of me playing this in class. There's nothing graphically on the screen, but it's just a very tough topic. And so just, just kind of know that going into it. Hey, 
today india and china eliminate more girls uh, than the number of girls born in america every year the definition of genocide is a systematic and methodical extermination of a certain group and the gendercide is that systematic and methodical extermination of a gender group why are indian households secretly and brutally eliminating daughters from their family system they just wet the cloth and they fold it like this and they put it on the face so the child can't breathe immediately the child will die But what this is, is an entire system, a social machinery that says we don't want females. But the real problem started after I became pregnant, they started asking me for a sex determination. They wanted to know if the children are girls or boys. They started torturing me to get an abortion done. What should I do to save my daughters? कि उसके सिरे लागे देखा तो वो तो यहाँ पे गले पे पूरा निशान पड़ा हुआ है। निशान पड़ने के बाद तब हमें फिर रोना पिटना हमारे तो होश ही उड़ गए थे लड़की को देखके इसने मार कैसे दी? जब आंशिक वासन यूसे ना हुआ वो तो 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 नहीं सुनिया हुआ। 哎呀，反正在村子里都有家人搞这些工作的嘛，就陪他们知道我们在那里。呃，门市呢，阿在外头过来的，白南那边几个人，白南那我就不来，阿不离不离，咱得不得？我白南那哪里有白事了？嗯，白不离，白南那不离，那安家人，啊，也住过你那长老公那多。opportunity for Christians to really begin to speak into the culture. But I want you to think about this from a worldview standpoint. Why do we say that women are as valuable as men? It's because there's something in scripture that informs our worldview. And it says both men and women are created in the image of God. And see, this is why the Bible just can't be a bunch of nice stories. It makes bold claims and philosophical assertions that work themselves out in real life. And I, I don't think that this is a, a Christian film, but it's based on decidedly a Christian idea that women are worth saving and that their lives ought not to be taken simply because they're women. But that is a distinctly Judeo-Christian idea. And this brings us to a connected issue of human trafficking. Now, I want to play a, an interview I did about 50 pounds ago uh, <laughs> with, with uh, my coworker who has done uh, some, because I had the idea for this all the way back in February. Uh, so I've interviewed a coworker of mine 
who's gone over to Cambodia a few, few times, he and his wife. He's a biochemist, but he also has a deep interest in social justice type issues. And his, uh, they've actually done, uh, they actually have two adopted children. That's how committed they are to social justice issues is they even actively adopted two children from another country. Um, and so he and his wife, all their children are grown now and um, they've been going back and forth to Cambodia a few times. And so he's going to talk about uh, this issue really from a worldview standpoint, and it's about 20 minutes, and this will really be the bulk of the teaching today, is I want you to hear the conversation between Fuzz and I. And he has a PhD in biochemistry, but he is also a, a very devout Christian and deeply concerned about these issues. He has four daughters. And um, so we're going to watch this clip here with my friend, Dr. Fuzz Rana, and we're, I'm continuing the conversation, the teaching series that I've been doing on the image of God and various ways that I think that this very important and historic Christian doctrine helps us to respond to many of the events that we see in the news. So you're a biochemist. I'm a biochemist. And you're well. also a Christian apologist and you've been uh, working together for about 18 years now and it's been an honor uh, to call you a friend and a colleague. I've learned so much from you over the years and uh, just so glad to have you be part of this conversation. Now, I know you have a huge heart for social justice issues, both you and your wife, and you've actually done some things in your life along these lines. Mm -hmm. I want to start our conversation by having us watch a little video clip together by the actor Ashton Kutcher. He was testifying recently um, this, this video was making the rounds on social media a couple of weeks ago, and then I thought maybe we could have a little conversation about it. I'm here today to defend the right to pursue happiness. It's a simple notion, the right to pursue happiness. It's bestowed upon all of us by our Constitution. Every citizen of this country has the right to pursue it. But the right to pursue happiness for so many is stripped away, it's raped, it's abused, it's taken by force, fraud, or coercion, it is sold for the momentary happiness of another. Now, this is about the time uh, when I start talking about politics that the internet trolls tell me to stick to my day job. Uh, so I'd like to talk about my day job. My day job is as the chairman and the co-founder of Thorne. We build software to fight human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of children. And that's our core mission. My other day job is that of the father of two, a two-month-old and a two-year-old. And as part of that job that I take very seriously, I believe that it is my effort to defend their right to pursue happiness and to ensure a society and government that defends it as well. I've seen video content of a child that's the same age as mine being raped by an American man that was a sex tourist in Cambodia. And this child was so conditioned by her environment that she thought she was engaging in play. Kind of a powerful clip. Yeah, very powerful. Yeah, I know that you've been to Cambodia. Yes. And so you've seen some of these people firsthand who are coming out of these experiences and you've walked on those streets where these things have happened. Uh, share with us a little bit about your recent trip to, to Cambodia. Yeah, well, we w went over as part of a, a short-term missions team 
from our church, New Song Church in San Dimas, California. And we were partnering with a ministry that's there on the ground called Agape International Missions. And they're there to fight child sex trafficking. And they're taking really a holistic approach, which is really very encouraging that they, they're focusing a lot of effort on preventing child sex trafficking by trying to address some of the poverty issues, trying to put in place uh, safe programs for the children to go to, trying to get to know some of the families that most likely would be uh, potential victims uh, of uh, uh, child sex trafficking, and then also rescuing girls, putting them in a place where they can be restored, rehabilitated, and even employed. So it's kind of an A to Z program, but everything that they do is ultimately built around the gospel. And so it's it's very much a Christian approach to uh, combating child sex trafficking. Uh, one of the things that this organization did first is to plant a church in one of the communities outside of Phnom Penh where you see the, the worst of child sex trafficking. In fact, this little community is called Sway Pak, and it's known internationally as a child sex tourism destination. So people literally will plan vacations uh, to go to Sway Pak to spend that time abusing girls. Which is really hard for me to even yes. conceive of a mindset that books travel tickets to, to go do that kind right. of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the yeah, the level of, of depravity and in, in just wickedness associated with, with this is just, it's one of the, the most horrendous examples of evil in our world. The approach was to plant a church in that community and then all the work of Agape International Ministries really flows out of the, the, uh, a Christian presence in the community. Now, is there any connection, because this is in Cambodia and that is primarily a Buddhist country, do, it, does that ministry see any impact of the Buddhist worldview on like why they tolerate this sort of thing? And does that, is that a factor in play here? You know, as I interacted with people that were part of that ministry, we didn't really discuss worldview issues explicitly, but there was a, a constant reference to the idea that human beings are made in God's image. And that was a very important message uh, to the girls who they were rescuing from sex trafficking, uh, to the families that had young children that could potentially become victims of child sex trafficking, and, and then also to the community at large. Uh, and so implied in that statement, I think, were worldview ideas For sure. that were very, very much contrary to uh, the worldview that you see in Cambodia. Uh, but, you know, the first question I think anybody asks themselves is how on earth could there be a country where, though child sex trafficking is illegal, how could there be a country where you would have families, granted that are in ex extreme poverty, but families that would sell their daughters. To be that desperate. They would sell them for yeah. money uh, to, to pimps who would then traffic them. And if they, uh, Agape International Missions discovered that if they rescued the girls and returned them to the family, the family would turn around and sell them back again into uh, sex trafficking. So how on earth would you have a country like this? Well, one, of course, is Cambodia suffered horrendously under the Khmer Rouge. 
So you have an entire country that's literally suffering from PTSD. Okay. As you know, it, it's just hard to even imagine just the, the level of suffering that was perpetrated by the, the Khmer Rouge. Uh, so that's one, one thing. There's the corruption is rampant. And so even though it's illegal, if uh, the police get a tip that there's a brothel, they will go to shut it down. But the pimp and, and the people running that brothel will already be tipped off. Wow. And they, they will have moved everybody so that the police show up to an empty brothel. So there's corruption. There's extreme poverty. There's this horrendous history of suffering. But it's also, I think, a, a, a society that views women differently than men, where there's a devaluing of women. And so th there's an expression uh, there that uh, boys are like gold. Even if gold gets tarnished, it still has value. Girls are like cloth. And once a cloth gets dirty, you just discard it. And, and so there's not much value attributed to, to women. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, there's this idea is that if a father has a daughter, he's considered to be lucky because he can sell her into sex trafficking and the family can earn money for that. Uh, but there's also, a, the, the, I think, the Buddhist worldview that contributes to this to some degree because the idea there is, uh, uh, well, the idea of re reincarnation is part of the Cambodian Buddhist tradition. And, you know, there the idea is you don't interrupt suffering. People earn, deserve the lot that they have in life. Yeah. So if you're born as a, a girl in poverty, you earn that from your previous life. If you're sold into sex trafficking, you've, you've earned that. You don't want to disrupt that because you're disrupting their capacity to pay off karmic debt. And, of course, part of Buddhism is just to accept your circumstances, to make peace with your circumstances. And so when you put this all together in a pot, you've got this amalgam of ideas that I think explain in part why there's uh, child sex trafficking that is so much out in the open uh, in Cambodia. So it's a lot of complex layers there, but for this ministry, what they have found to be effective is inserting this message of the image of God, that these children are created in the image of God and have inherent dignity value and worth. That's a critical part of their message. Right. And of course, very countercultural for them. Yes, it is. A, it's, it's highly countercultural. And when, you know, you, you're pulling a, a girl out of, you're rescuing a girl from a brothel and now she's in a safe place and you, you're, you're having her go through a process of restoration. Of course, there's enormous amount of counseling, but a lot of that is to, uh, um, is to, to um, communicate to that child that you have infinite worth and value because you're made in God's image. And it takes, I think, quite a bit of time sometimes to convince these young girls that they do have value, you know, and... Because they've been brought up to believe that they don't. It's just a totally different way of seeing themselves. Right, right. You know, and 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 so that's, that's very important. It's also important, too, uh, to establish within the community that human life has inherent value and dignity. And, and so that when that idea takes hold, you know, in the community, then, you know, that, that too is also very powerful because it, it now says to people that this is just simply not acceptable. You know, it's amazing because in Sway Park, when we were there, the, the street, the main street is just garbage and dirt, dirt in the potholes. It's just, 
you know, very, very primitive. And, you know, the, the street, Main Street is lined with buildings. And when we were there, they were pointing out to us, and literally every building was either at one time a brothel or it was a hotel that was in service to the brothels. And the Agape International bought one of those buildings after a raid and put a, a Christian outreach center there that then turned into a church. They were able to buy the hotel. And one by one, the brothels were shut down and Agape International bought the, the buildings. And they now are in, in, uh, basically part of the ministry. But literally the entire street now is, is free of brothels and are basically Christ, uh, you know, components of this Christian ministry. So by starting by putting that church right there in the middle, right. and then that has kind of had a, an effect in, right. the, in really wanting to change the whole culture and right. how they see themselves, how they see their daughters. Right. That's amazing. Right. And so they're, they're, part of this is they're creating um, uh, like a garment factory. They built a garment factory. They, they built a factory where they build or bracelets and T-shirts and things to employ these girls actually to even employ people in the community so that they have uh, some kind of economic livelihood. They have ministries to people that live in brick factories, literally like animals. They have no, there's, they don't even have adequate shelter. They just live there on the brick factory and they work and they're, you know, it's in almost a form of indentured servitude, but they go to the brick factory workers and they bring their ch kids to the church in the afternoon for a programming giving the kids snacks so they have something to eat, you know, uh, teaching them the gospel. But it's also a safe place. It's also a way for them to get to know the family so that if suddenly that kid disappears, now they, they, they can be alerted to that fact and they can begin to ask questions. So they really are investing in the lives of the people in the community. But, you know, to me, you, you see the power of the gospel. I was no, I was no more convinced in my life that the gospel... Uh, is uh, of the truth of the gospel by seeing the impact that the gospel can have. Uh, it literally is a miracle. Wow. They're, they're building a school there now for the kids in the community. And uh, there was a, a, a Cambodian uh, government official who was a Buddhist that came there to dedicate the building. And he, they had prepared remarks for him. He set aside the remarks and he basically said, um, that um, it's clear to me that God is present in this community. He's so I'm so thankful that the Christians are here in this community because this is a miracle what's happened in Swaypok. So here you have this community that went from being, and if you look up Swaypok in, in Wikipedia, it'll be described as being a child sex tourism destination. One of the top destinations in the world for that horrendous activity is now basically a place that's uh, a safe community that's attracting businesses. So, you know, but it's all, it all predicates on the image of God. The gospel is based on the idea that we bear God's image. That's interesting. Now in the clip that we watched with Ashton Kutcher, you know, I don't know what his religious persuasion is, but let's think about it in American terms. Many Americans are either naturalists or mostly functional naturalists. <laughs> And there we get kind of lurking in the background when we think about what does it mean to be a human being. We have ideas about common descent, evolution, biological evolution. Can you talk to us a little bit about the differences 
in that worldview and the the biblical concept of being created in the image of God. Yeah. Well, you know, that one of the things that was really frightening to me is I, I while I was there, that the church that was connected with Agape International Missions has these young people, they call them the disciples, that the pastor of the church is, is training so that they can go into ministry supporting church plants and the work of Agape International Missions. And um, I did a Bible study where we went through the creation accounts. And we also we went through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which, you know, part of that is in Genesis 1 is human origins. Genesis 2 is solely focused on human origins. We talked about Psalm 8, which is also a, a human origins creation account. And these young people were asking me about human evolution. So here I am in Cambodia in an extremely impoverished area. And these young people were asking me about questions about human evolution. And is this true? Right. And why were they asking those questions? Because there's a growing Western influence in Cambodia and they're trying to become uh, more scientific. And so these young people are in high school, they're in college, you know, and uh, they have aspirations to, to get this kind of training, which is very exciting. Uh, but they're confronted with this idea to me, which is, is really, it's frightening because now you're going from a, a Buddhist worldview that devalues women to a naturalistic worldview that basically says humans are the product of evolution. There's no purpose to human life. We're just one among countless number of species that have existed. There's nothing special or distinct about us. We're glorified chimps, if anything, you know, and in, in, if you take a view of evolution where uh, evolution is historically contingent, then we may not even ever originated as a species. And so uh, to replace a Buddhist worldview with that worldview, again, I think is, is really frightening in that culture because, hey, if we're just, if our life is meaningless and purposeless, why not sell my daughter into, into sex trafficking? Uh, there's, no, there's no right or wrong, right? People are just kind of there as for a utilitarian purpose to monetary gain, provide monetary gain or provide pleasure or right. whatever that is. And when you break down the construct of having inherent dignity, value and worth, right. what are we left with at that point? It's, it's, it's tricky. Right. But, th but then you see um, somebody like Ashton Kutcher, who, again, we don't know his religious perspective, but let's just say for sake of argument, he is, uh, you know, uh, uh, some kind of secular humanist or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because in that view, you are um, deciding that human life has value, but there's no inherent reason to think that human life has value. Right. But it, isn't it interesting how emotionally, and I think his emotions were genuine, you know, how much effort he's investing in trying to combat child sex trafficking. He really thinks this is a morally wrong thing. Yeah. And, and so the question is why? Right. You know, you know, I, on my Facebook page, once I, I, I was engaging in a conversation with an atheist and this lady uh, finally out of exacerbation said, why do we have to keep beating each other over the head about evolution? Let's just work together to solve all these social, th these issues of social injustice. And my response to her was like, I think it's wonderful if people of different worldviews can work together, but why do you see these things as, as social injustice? 
you know, there's not right or wrong. There's no real motivation that you have that flows out of your worldview to even recognize things right. as injustice. Because in the Christian worldview, we would say that some things are morally right or morally wrong because we have a moral lawgiver right. from where they come from that comes out of his own very nature right. as God is what is the good. But when you're in a, a worldview of naturalism or secular humanism, you want to solve the world's problems. That's great. But the, naturally, the question is, why do you want to do that? What makes one thing morally, more morally right than another thing? It's it's an interesting dilemma. Well, you know, one of the things that was fascinating is we got a chance to interact with some of the girls who were rescued. And if you didn't know their history, you would you would not have guessed that, that they were victims of child sex trafficking. They had so much joy. And I always looked at, at that as flowing out of the idea that they have apprehended the notion that they're made in God's image that they have value, they have worth, they have hope for not only their future here on earth, but there's actually hope for, uh, you know, eternity to come. Yeah. You know, and that that is where that joy is coming from. And again, it's it's the power of the gospel, but it's also the power of the idea that they are they are people of dignity, you know, and that their dignity is is restored in in that relationship with with the creator. And isn't it interesting how in that case, as well as in the situation with Agape International, that they tie work into the person's dignity, which is a theme that we talked about a few weeks ago. That the point I was trying to argue in that, in that lesson was that work is part of intrinsic to what it means to be a human person. And so isn't it interesting in, in so many of these ministries that deal with with women, part of giving them back their dignity is giving them a skill and providing a job and having them do something because that is, that is just part of us as humans. Well, that, the only other option would be uh, prostitution exactly, or something else. Exactly, exactly. And also the issue of literacy is based as another key feature of the image of God because we, we say that part of what it means to be human is how to have a mind. You remember the old ad for the United Negro College Fund in the 70s? That a mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? A mind is a distinctly Christian idea that there is this immaterial part of us that is capable of thinking and rationality and that that is also historically part of what it means to be created in God's image. And so to teach a girl how to read is to affirm the image of God in her. To teach a girl and to educate her is to say you have a mind that is capable of learning just every bit as much as a boy. And this is, again, just these are all interconnected ideas. And we see these played out more in these ministries that deal with this area because they are, they are in this conversation, but they are living out this doctrine of what it means to be created in the image of God on a, on a very personal and experiential level. So let's talk for a minute about some themes a little closer to home. Let's talk a little bit about porn, which is a very difficult topic and one that we should probably talk a little bit more about. There is an intimate connection between sex trafficking and porn. 
sex trafficking, we can kind of distance ourselves and think about that. That's something that happens in another country somewhere else, although it is on the rise here in our own country as well. 74% of those likely sex trafficking victims were in the care of social services or foster care when they went missing. As sex trafficking grows in our own country, the most vulnerable population are children in foster care. And so our own church's mission to minister to children in foster care has a direct connection to what we're talking about. There is a high probability or likelihood that children, both boys and girls, who are in the foster care system will be vulnerable to becoming ensnared in some kind of sex trafficking situation. And many of these um, are used in the creation of porn. Many times children who get caught up in sex trafficking rings are not just used for prostitution. They're also used to create porn. And porn, our culture, because of our wealth, we have an insatiable appetite for porn because we are the ones that have the money and we drive a lot of the consuming of and creation of porn. Porn is a very difficult issue, but these are just some statistics just um, in comparison, in, in particular about Christians' use and porn, 76% of 18 to 24-year-old Christians actively seek out porn. That is a large number. The rise of the internet, there is a strong parallel between the rise of the internet and the rise of use of mobile devices and the rise of porn. Because now, porn is not no longer like, I've got to drive to a seedy part of town And I don't want to be seen going into an adult bookstore. I can just give my credit card or I could even possibly even access free porn if I'm really cheap. And but it is so accessible now. Seventy one percent of teens hide their online behavior from their parents. That seems obvious. What are they hiding? I'm I'm sort of alarmed at how freely parents allow their children to have mobile devices and that they think that, I don't know, that their child isn't really going to do anything nefarious with that. But then I cannot tell you how many of the the people that I pray for um, in in the intercessory prayer ministry that I do, a high percentage of them are addicted to porn and it started around the age of 12. That is the most common age where the child gets introduced to porn. 68% of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. And a regular basis is probably two to three times a week-ish to two to three times a month, somewhere in there, multiple times a month to multiple times a week. 56% of divorce cases involve one partner having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. This is another thing that I see so often in prayer ministry is that so many of the women that I talk to have husbands who are addicted to porn and then their marriages are in trouble. It is a high, high percentage. 
And there are women who are addicted to porn as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. 54% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Oh, my gosh. 54%. Something has gone dreadfully wrong. And we, we, you, you all told me the first week when we started this, oh, why are we talking about this question? Isn't, uh, isn't it obvious that women are as valuable as men? I'm not sure it's so obvious in our lifestyle, yeah. that w- the choices that we're making, even for us as Christians. And, and I'm calling us to transform our own culture from within to live by the values that we just saw in the clips that were like, there's virtue, there's love, there's hope, there's beauty. But then in our own culture, we're, we're, we're in a very hard position because porn is rampant. It is a big problem. Women in porn, 70% of women keep their cyber activities secret. Here's a breakdown of male-female visitations to porn. 72% male, 28% female. So we're also part of the problem. Women are also struggling with porn addiction. There's a ministry called Triple X Church. It's women who have worked in the porn industry who minister to other women in that industry. It's a Christian ministry. That's kind of their focus. And they're the ones that put this infographic together. Now I'm going to go through some statements of when we talk like the fall, when we talk like the curse, so that we can begin to kind of check ourselves in in our speech and what we do and what we say. When we promote domination instead of humility or mutual service as God's ideal, we don't want to be telling women that it's okay for your husband to beat you in Jesus' name. That's, that's, That's not what we want to be doing. The virtues of Christ are humility and self-sacrifice and mutual serving. And one thing I want to say about porn before I leave that, uh, the Lord's bringing it to my memory, is um, if, if porn is an issue, just statistically speaking, there's a, some percentage of you in this room that struggle with porn. And I want you to know right now that Jesus loves you. And he sees you in your struggle. And he sees the shame that you struggle with. And if that's a conversation that you would like to, if that's an issue that you would like to be free from, and that's a conversation that you would like to get in because you are courageous and you truly believe that Jesus died just to, he didn't die just to forgive your sins. He died to set you free from your sins. My husband and I are a stand for you and your freedom. Come talk to us. If you're a guy, you can talk to Bob. If you're a lady, you can come talk to me. But this is what we do all the time in ministry. And we want to help be a stand for your freedom. So if this is something that you struggle with and you're privately thinking, I'm going to have an attitude of judgment or condemnation against you, I can assure you that I do not. And that my husband and I have helped many people with this issue. And this is part of what we do. And so if that's a discussion you would like to get in and you would really like to become free from that, come talk to us because we live this out every day in our, in our ministry together. And this is part of what God has called us to do. And so just, just keep that in mind. We talk like the fall or the curse when we say things like boys will be boys 
meaning that boys can't help their sexual behavior or their porn use. See, part of this instructs us on how we raise our sons and how we raise our daughters to think about men they might date. When we say things like boys will be boys, we're insinuating that boys really have no self-control and no hope for self-control. But if the Holy Spirit lives in them, there's hope for self-control. And we want to empower them to live in their identity in Christ Jesus. The responsibility to be chaste, careful, and above reproach and self-controlled is primarily shouldered by the, by the girls or the women. That is thinking like the curse. It's all of our responsibility, men and women. Men have their side of the street to keep their minds pure. Women have their side of the street in what they do. We all have responsibility. Remember we talked last week about thinking of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? When we begin to think of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're telling our boys and our girls that they have inherent dignity, value, and worth, and they ought to expect that from their peers who are in Christ. We don't want to think like, like the curse, and we don't want to talk like the curse with our children. We talk like the curse or the fall when we excuse demeaning talk about women just as locker room talk. Locker room talk is, is sort of the precursor to sexual violence. When you start making it okay for you to talk about it, you're one step away from making it okay to act out on it. This is a message that we need to send to both boys and girls. We talk like the fall or the curse when we say that the girl deserved to be raped. Look how she's dressed. There was an interesting art exhibit um, that I saw recently, I, I can't remember, I think it was in the Atlantic. They, an artist did an art display on like uh, clothes that women were wearing when they were raped, like 10 different sets of clothes. And this stereotype that if you dress a certain way, you provocatively, you, you're just sort of inviting rape. And there was nothing about any of these outfits that was provocative. And so we have to kind of maybe rethink some of our stereotypes about these things and, and how we're talking about these things. We think like the fall or the curse when we say things like men can't control themselves. Well, apart from the Holy Spirit, you know, if we're just giving ourselves over to our depravity, then, you know, that's, that's a mindset. But we have higher hopes for things because all humans are created in the image of God. Even apart from the Holy Spirit, there is a way of teaching our sons and our daughters how to treat each other well. Men and women can't just be friends. Sex is inevitable. This is a a very damaging mindset, I think, especially if we're Christians. We want to, as a culture, begin to talk about the realm of common grace and advocate for the created order. And we do this when we protect the innocent, when we protect our children, we pass hard laws that protect our children, when we actually prosecute people who harm children or harm women or even harm men. When we, when we prosecute, do you know how hard it is to prosecute a, a, a sex offense? It's hard. I just watched a very powerful documentary yesterday. Um, It's called An Open Secret. 
and it was uh, it was available for free. It was on Vimeo. It was very well done, and it's about pedophilia in Hollywood, and how difficult it is has been to prosecute these cases, and we need to advocate for prosecution. That's where Christians can really make a difference. When we praise and expect self-control in both boys and girls, we advocate for the created order or common grace when we advocate for concepts like consent. This is a word in our culture. We need to be careful. Like I hear so many people that are of a more conservative nature say, well, that's just, that's just a bunch of liberalism, you know? And it's like, no, this is about an image of God issue. This is, this is a, an issue of not politics. This is an issue of dignity. When we pass laws that protect men and women equally from sexual coercion and violation, when we treat child prostitutes, even the term child prostitute is, it, it, it is, it's a child victim. Child prostitutes as victims and punish the Johns. I have a good friend who's really involved in this realm uh, she does a lot of advocacy in the San Bernardino County uh, in the realm of sex trafficking of children. And one of the biggest challenges they have is that many of the laws protect the Johns more than the, the child prostitutes. The way that the laws are, many of the laws are currently written, and that's changing. But there is a, there is a common and have been a longstanding belief that the problem with prostitution is the women. And this is something that we need to rethink as a culture as child sex prostitutes victims continues to grow, especially in our nearby in the, in the Pomona area. It's a very big problem. This week on social media, there was this big hashtag campaign of the Me Too hashtag. How many of you saw this in your media feeds? And many of the comments that I saw, women, basically this was a, a Hollywood star um, Alyssa Milano uh, was saying, you know, if, if every woman would write um, the words Me Too in the, on social media, just to give a, a feel for the scope of how many women have been ass- sexually assaulted. And then all of a sudden you start seeing all of these Me Too's in your social media feed. I mean, this is a pervasive issue. And I, I think that, you know, most of the time I feel like social media is fairly... Um, useless. But this was something that I felt like it may have actually had a redemptive value to give, because I saw many men in, then in my social media feed saying, I had no idea how, how pervasive this really was. We live like redeemed people, like saving faith people, God's people, when we advocate, I think, for teamwork and partnerships in ministry. When we're not just trying to lobby for each other of like, how, what's my angle? Who's in charge? And what does that look like? A Christian value says, what's humility? How can I serve each other? How can we be a partner together in the gospel? What, what can we do together? When we stand for healthy male-female friendships, friendships are just such a totally underrated concept, I think, in evangelical Christianity that we really need to talk more about is the value of friendships treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We live like redeemed people. We think like redeemed people. We talk like redeemed people when we advocate for a vision of mutuality in marriage. 
And I challenge you this week to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see how many, how many statements of mutuality you can come up with there from Paul in terms of how the husband and wife ought to uh, submit to each other. It's a great passage. Because so oftentimes our conversations are about like, well, who's, the, who's in charge? Who has the last say? What's going to happen? But there's a very big theme in, as New Testament Christians of mutual serving, mutual humility. Think of Jesus watching, washing the feet of the apostles. He wasn't like, well, you know, you're the disciples. I'm the rabbi. You wash my feet. That's how this works. His example to us is that of humility and serving others. And how can we do that together? How can we cultivate that as a Christian culture? We act like redeemed people. Now I'm going to have a little soapbox. And I got two minutes to do it. When we don't tell abused people that they must go home to their abusers in the name of forgiveness. This is a huge problem in the church. I cannot tell you how many abuse victims that I talk to in prayer ministry and I say, have you gone to talk to your pastor? What has your pastor told you? My pastor tells me I need to stay with my abusive husband. I just need to forgive him. Nine times out of ten, that's what the pastor tells them. And I had a situation just yesterday with a gal from this church that I've been counseling with. She's been trying to help a friend who is a, a victim of domestic violence. And that was exactly what the pastor counseled her and her husband in front of the husband on Wednesday, telling the wife she needed to forgive him and go home with him. We are not acting like redeemed people when this is our advice or our counsel. So if, some, if somebody comes to you in your oikos, some woman in your women's Bible study, someone, a friend that you know, and they finally work up the courage to tell you, I think my marriage might not be normal. Or if they tell you euphemisms like, my marriage is chronically difficult, start probing. Because as I said last week, most people in abusive marriages do not actually know they're in an abusive marriage. And they, they, they use euphemisms like, it's just hard all the time. I feel, I feel so sad. I, I don't know what to do. I feel confused. These are often phrases that are used by abuse victims, and you've got to start gently drilling in to find out what's happening. And it might mean you have to do things like I've had to do, or you're going to help your friend get some things together. And move out. That might be what that is. Because remember, I'm always telling you this class, love must look like something. You can't just tell a person, be well and fed. Be blessed. I hope that works out for you. Sometimes you have to go to people's houses and help them pack some boxes. Sometimes you have to get involved. And I think that we need to do think about how we can do more for these people. Uh, House of Ruth is a wonderful local resource in Pomona that does uh, work for uh, people who are in abusive marriages and they provide counseling, they provide transitional housing. I've referred several people there and that is a wonderful local resource that can help people in an emergency. Okay, let's finish this up. 
Long-term solutions. How much of a cultural disruption are we being currently to protect the dignity of women? I think we're doing pretty good in some areas. I think the church is doing some good things. I think that we've seen some good examples today, but I think we could do more. I think that we could uh, have a little bit more clarity about how we, how we talk to people about abuse. I think we could do more to help um, advocate in our own homes and how we raise our children into how we talk about the other sex. How can we advocate for Christian values within the church and, and in the culture that treat women as equally valuable, as should be as men, equally, that treat women equally as value, valuable as men? This is, this is not a lecture on man-hating. You know, man-hating is not a solution, okay? It's not that, that men are better than women or that women are better than men. It's that we have equal. Have I not emphasized that enough? Yes. If you go away from all this and you think this is a message about man-hating, this is a distinctly Christian vision of feminism. Remember we talked about feminism at the beginning of last week? What I have been trying to outline for the last two weeks is a distinctly Christian vision of feminism. Man-hating is not a solution. Men are not the problem. Men are part of the solution as we raise up our boys to have respect. And, as, and women are also part of the solution as we live holy lives together in community as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you are doing in your church, what you're doing with your people to help challenge us to advocate for the dignity of men and women all over the world, that exploitation and domination is not your heart, Father. That does not reflect the Father's heart. Father, make us be, help us to clarify our minds and clarify our stand for the gospel and for the image of God, for the people around us everywhere we go, that we would recognize when we're starting to think like the fall or when we hear something on the news media and we think, oh, that's, that's curse thinking. What is my thinking as a redeemed person? How do I need to think? Oh, Father, we are so broken as a people and as a country. We ask that you give us a prophetic vision of how you see us and how you see your people so that we may align ourselves with your hopes and dreams and that we would truly be advocates to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.